0: section two of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter forty eight the new government part two mr stansfeld was believed to be one of the rising men of the day he was an advanced radical especially known for his sympathies with the movements and the cause of the more energetic of the italian leaders he had made a speech during one of the reform debates of 1860 which called forth a high compliment from mr disraeli who was always ready to welcome new ability and promise on whatever side it displayed itself he had proposed a resolution in favour of reduction of expenditure when lord palmerston was most active in swelling the war costs of the country The resolution was well supported and apparently had a fair chance of success until lord palmerston contrived to alarm the house with the idea that if he did not get his way he would resign and in the eyes of not a few members the resignation of lord palmerston appeared to be much the same thing as the coming again of chaos mr stansfeld however became a person of a certain political importance and in eighteen sixty three lord palmerston invited him to take office as one of the lords of the admiralty while he held that office an incident occurred which gave rise to a controversy of rather a curious nature a plot was discovered in paris for the assassination of the emperor of the french the french government believed or said they believed that mazzini was connected with the plot mazzini was a close friend of mr stansfeld and it appeared was in the habit of having his private letters sent for him under a feigned name to mr stansfeld's house at the trial of the accused men in paris it was stated by the procureur imperial in his speech that a paper had been found in the possession of one of the prisoners authorising him to write for money to mr flowers At the address of mr stansfeld in london now it seemed that mazzini's letters were sometimes addressed to him as mr fiori or flowers after what we have already told in this history concerning the opening of mazzini's letters in the post office here it is not very surprising that mazzini should prefer not to have his letters addressed to his own name on these facts however some members of the house of commons liberals as well as tories got up a sort of charge against mr stansfeld not that any man in his senses seriously believed that mr stansfeld had anything to do with an assassination plot nor indeed that there was any evidence to show that mazzini was acquainted with the peculiar designs of the accused persons in this case still it seemed a good chance for an attack on the ministry through mr stansfeld and no one could deny that there was a certain amount of indiscretion not to say impropriety in mr stansfeld's good-natured arrangement with mazzini a man holding ministerial office however subordinate is not warranted in allowing his house to be the receptacle of secret letters for one engaged like mazzini in revolutionary plots against established governments mr stansfeld felt himself called on to resign his office and lord palmerston though at first he politely pressed him to reconsider the resolve consented after a while to accept the resignation mr stansfeld however was sure to be invited to take office again and the whole episode would probably have been soon forgotten if it were not for one odd incident during the discussions mr disraeli strongly condemned mr stansfeld for his avowed friendship with mazzini And reminded the House of a statement made by Mr. Galenga, an Italian politician and journalist, to the effect that Mazzini once encouraged him, then a young man of wild and extravagant notions, in a design to kill Charles Albert, King of Sardinia. Mr. Bright came to Mr. Stansfeld's defence in a very kindly and generous speech, made the more effective because of his well known lack of sympathy with the schemes of revolutionists anywhere he pointed out that the evidence of mazzini's distinctly sanctioning regicide was by no means clear and that mr stansfeld might well be excused if he attached little importance to a story told of mazzini at such a distant time mr bright went on good-humouredly to show that high-flown talk about tyrannicide was unfortunately almost a commonplace with a certain class of young rhapsodical political writers and added that he believed there would be found in a poem called a revolutionary epic written by mr disraeli himself some five-and-twenty or thirty years before certain lines of eloquent apostrophe in praise of the slaying of tyrants mr disraeli rose at once and with some warmth denied that any such sentiment or any word suggesting it could be found in the poem Mr. Bright, of course, accepted the assurance. He explained that he had never seen the poem himself, but had been positively informed that it contained such a passage, and he withdrew the statement with a handsome apology. Everyone supposed the matter would have dropped there. The revolutionary epic was a piece of metrical bombast published by Mr. Disraeli a generation before and forgotten by almost all the living. Mr. Disraeli, however, declared that he attached great importance to the charge made against him, and that he felt bound to refute it by more than a mere denial. He therefore published a new edition of the poem which he dedicated to Lord Stanley, in order to settle the controversy. I have therefore thought it, he explains, the simplest course, and one which might save me trouble hereafter, to publish the revolutionary epic it is printed from the only copy in my possession and which with slight exceptions was corrected in eighteen thirty seven when after three years reflection i had resolved not only to correct but to complete the work the corrections are purely literary the poem thus republished seemed more a literary curiosity than a work of art it had a preface which was positively grotesque in its grandiloquence it was on the plains of troy the writer informed the world, that I first conceived the idea of this work. On that interesting spot, it seems to have occurred to him for the first time that the most heroic incident of an heroic age produced in the Iliad an heroic epoch. Thus the consolidation of the most superb of empires produced in the Aeneid a political epoch the revival of learning and the birth of vernacular genius presented us in the divine comedy with a national epic and the reformation and its consequences called from the rapt lyre of milton a religious epic then the author naturally was led to ask should the spirit of his time alone be uncelebrated as naturally came the answer that the spirit of mr disraeli's time ought to be celebrated and that mr disraeli was the man to celebrate it standing upon asia and gazing upon europe the inspiration descended on him for me he exclaimed remains the revolutionary epic there was so much of the youth not to say of the schoolboy in these bursts of extraordinary eloquence that no one could have thought of making any serious accusation against mr disraeli in his graver days even if the pages of such a poem had been enlivened by some nonsense about tyrannicide the work as reprinted certainly contained no passage to show that the young writer entertained any such opinions unfortunately however it was found that in the republication the questionable passages had somehow undergone a process of alteration very few copies of the original edition were in existence but the British Museum treasured one, and from this it was found that the new version was not quite the same as the original. Thus, in the new edition, published specially for the purpose of repelling the charge about tyrannicide, the lines about Brutus were very harmless. Rome's strong career was mine, the blow bold Brutus struck, her fate. But in the original edition it ran thus to a much more audacious note the spirit of her strong career was mine and the bold brutus but propelled the blow her own and nature's laws alike approved there were other slight modifications too into which it is not necessary to enter enough has been said to show that by what we must suppose to have been some unlucky accident mr disraeli came to publish as a final and complete refutation of the charge founded upon his revolutionary epic, a version of that work which was altered from the original in several passages, and in the passage most important of all. We have spoken of a charge made against Mr. Disraeli, but that is giving by far too serious a name to the good-humoured statement made by Mr. Bright. Neither Mr. Bright nor anyone else supposed for a moment that Mr. Disraeli ever seriously approved of regicide. Neither Mr. Bright nor anyone else, would have thought of holding mr disraeli gravely responsible for some youthful rhodomontades published in a forgotten attempt at poetry all that mr bright apparently meant to say was don't be too rigid in censoring the incautious utterances of men's early and foolish years did not you yourself in a poem published thirty years ago talk some nonsense about nature's approval of tyrannicide The only seriousness given to the matter was when Mr. Disraeli published the new edition for the purpose of finally repudiating the charge, and the new edition was found to have the peculiar passages altered. That was unlucky. If Mr. Disraeli printed from the only copy in his possession, and which he had corrected after three years' reflection, it still was a pity he did not leave the disputed passages uncorrected or restore them to their original shape the question was not whether after three years reflection mr disraeli was entitled to alter in eighteen thirty seven what he had published in eighteen thirty four the question was only as to what he had published in eighteen thirty four nor is it easy to understand how considering what the controversy was about he could have regarded the corrections as purely literary We are bound to say, however, that the incident did Mr. Disraeli no particular harm. The English public has always been curiously unwilling to take Mr. Disraeli seriously. The great majority laughed at the whole thing and made no further account of it. There were some rising men on the Tory side. Sir Hugh Cairns, afterwards Lord Chancellor and a peer, had fought his way by sheer talent and energy into the front rank of opposition a lawyer from belfast and the son of middle-class parents he had risen into celebrity and influence while yet he was in the very prime of life he was a lawyer whose knowledge of his own craft might fairly be called profound he was one of the most effective debaters in parliament his resources of telling argument were almost inexhaustible and his training at the bar gave him the faculty of making the best at the shortest notice of all the facts he was able to bring to bear on any question of controversy he showed more than once that he was capable of pouring out an animated and even a passionate invective an orator in the highest sense he certainly was not no gleam of imagination softened or brightened his lithe and nervous logic no deep feeling animated and inspired it his speeches were arguments not eloquence instruments not literature but he was on the whole the greatest political lawyer since lyndhurst and he was probably a sounder lawyer than lyndhurst he had above all things skill and discretion he could do much for the aboriginal tories if we may use such a word which they could not do of or for themselves and his appearance in the front rank of conservatism made it much more formidable than it was before like mr disraeli himself however sir hugh cairns was an imported auxiliary of toryism the conservative party had always to retain their foreign legion as the french kings had their scottish archers their swiss guard or their irish brigade in the house of commons there were very few genuine english tories capable of sustaining with mr disraeli the brunt of debate The Conservative leader's most effective adjutants were men like Sir Hugh Cairns, an Irish lawyer, Mr. Whiteside, a voluble, eloquent, sometimes rather boisterous speaker, also an Irishman and a lawyer, Mr. Seymour Fitzgerald, a clever Irishman who had at least been called to the bar. Sir Stafford Northcote was a man of ability who had had an excellent financial training under no less a teacher than Mr. Gladstone himself. But Sir Stafford Northcote, although a fluent speaker, was not a great debater, and, moreover, he had but little of the genuine Tory in him. He was a man of far too modern a spirit and training to be a genuine Tory. He was not one whit more conservative than most of the Whigs. Mr. Gathorne Hardy, afterwards Lord Cranbrook, was a man of ingrained Tory instincts rather than convictions. He was a powerful speaker of the rattling, declamatory kind, fluent as the sand in an hourglass is fluent, stirring as the roll of a drum is stirring, sometimes dry as the sand and empty as the drum. A man of far higher ability and of really great promise was Sir Robert Cecil, afterwards Lord Cranbourne and now Marquis of Salisbury lord robert cecil was at this time the ablest scion of noble toryism in the house of commons he was younger than lord stanley and he had not lord stanley's solidity caution or political information but he had more originality he had brilliant ideas he was ready in debate and he had a positive genius for saying bitter things in the bitterest tone the younger son of a great peer he had at one time no apparent chance of succeeding to the title in the estates he had accepted honourable poverty and was glad to help out his means by the use of his very clever pen he wrote in several publications it was said especially in the quarterly review the time-honoured and somewhat time-worn organ of toryism and after a while certain political articles in the quarterly came to be identified with his name he was an ultra tory a tory on principle who would hear of no compromise one great object of his political writings appeared to be to denounce mr disraeli his titular leader and to warn the party against him for a long time he was disliked by most persons in the house of commons his gestures were ungainly his voice was singularly unmusical and harsh and the extraordinary and wanton bitterness of his tongue set the ordinary listeners against him. He seemed to take a positive delight in being gratuitously offensive. One night, during the session of 1862, he attacked Mr. Gladstone's financial policy and likened it to the practice of a pettifogging attorney. This was felt to be somewhat coarse, and there were many murmurs of disapprobation. Lord Robert Cecil cared as little for disapprobation or decorum as the son of Tissander in the story told by Herodotus, and he went on with his speech unheeding. Next night, when the debate was resumed, Lord Robert rose and said he feared he had, on the previous evening, uttered some words which might give offence, and which he felt that he could not justify. There were murmurs of encouraging applause. The House of Commons admires nothing more than an unsolicited and manly apology. He had, Lord Robert went on to say, compared the policy of Mr. Gladstone to the practice of a petty-fogging attorney. That was language which, on cooler consideration, he felt that he ought not to have used, and therefore he begged leave to tender his sincere apology to the attorneys. There was something so wanton, something so nearly approaching to mere buffoonery and conduct like this, that many men found themselves unable to recognise the really high intellectual qualities that were hidden behind that curious mask of offensive cynicism lord robert cecil therefore although a genuine tory or perhaps because he was a genuine tory could not as yet be looked upon as a man likely to render great service to his party he was just as likely to turn against them at some moment of political importance he would not fall in with the discipline of the party he would not subject his opinions or his caprices to its supposed interests. He was not made to swear in the words of the leader who then guided the party in the House of Commons. Some men on his own side of the House disliked him. Many feared him. Some few admired him. No one regarded him as a trustworthy party man. At this period of its career, as at almost all others, Toryism, as a parliamentary party, lived and won its occasional successes by the guidance and the services of brilliant outsiders had it been left to the leadership of genuine tories it would probably have come to an end long before at this particular time to which we have now conducted it it lived and looked upon the earth had hope of triumph and gains had a present and a future only because it allowed itself to be led by men whom it sometimes distrusted whom, according to some of its own legitimate princelings, it ought to have always disavowed. End of section two.